0: We are in the book of Romans, and I invite you to turn there as we continue our study, having concluded the, what really is the formal introduction to the book, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans in verses 1 through 15. We're now ready to begin the study of the, the body of the letter, beginning in verse 16. We've already seen how Paul, from the very outset, makes it clear that this letter is going to be in its entirety about the gospel of God or of God's gospel, the good news to which he has been called and to which he has been set apart. He's already begun to define and describe the gospel in these opening verses, as we've seen. He himself, as a man uh, arrested by God on the road to Damascus, converted by the power of the Spirit, He himself has been impacted by that gospel, and we've seen in his own description of who he is and what motivates and drives him, as we would say. Everything for Paul, everything, is centered on what the Lord has done in his life through the gospel, a gospel that has changed him, continues to change him, and has worked in him the obedience of faith. And now it is time for the apostle desiring to write and to explain and to help the church in Rome to understand the depths of the gospel. Now it is time to this church he has never visited in person at the time of writing this letter. Now it is time for him to unpack that gospel. And he begins the unpacking of the gospel in these two verses, 16 and 17, which really are rightly referred to as the theme verses of the entire book. That means everything these verses say is going to be everything that we're going to say through the rest of our study of the book of Romans. Over and over again, Paul is going to take us through these things. Like a navigation system in your car or on your phone, these two verses will set the course for the entire letter, telling us where we're going and giving us very clear directions as to how to get there. So buckle up. Get ready as we begin our earnest study in the gospel of of the gospel as Paul lays it out in the book of Romans. And we're only going to read two verses, but I still will ask you to stand as we read these two, the theme verses of Romans in verse 16 and 17. This is God's word, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith thus far the reading of God's word all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flowers they fade but the word of our God stands forever let us pray Father, hear our prayer now as we come to you, the author of this, your word, through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, working through men like Paul, who wrote down the very things that you would have your church to know. And there is no greater thing for us to know, especially this night, than the gospel of God as we have seen it revealed in Jesus Christ. And so be our teacher, give us understanding, hearts, that welcome and receive your word and the power of your spirit. Impress those things upon our minds, our hearts, our lives. And we pray this with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. None of us, of course, were alive at that time when these two verses, especially verse 17 had its impact upon a young monk by the name of Martin Luther. So it is difficult for us at a distance in time to recreate what happened. And what we're left with only is the words are the words of Luther himself, how he expressed what the Lord did in his own life during those early days of the Reformation. For good reason, these two verses, especially verse 17, are called Luther's verses. Luther lived, of course, we know, in a very different time than we do, a time in which there was much confusion about the doctrine of justification or how a person, a sinner, is made right or righteous before a holy God. These are the things that would be worked out in God's providence as by the Spirit he would lead men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and so many others to write down, to teach, to instruct the Church. He would lead them in all truth. And this, of course, is the most important question that any person, including every person sitting here tonight, can ask. It should be, for each one of us, the greatest concern of our lives. And as you know, it was for Luther, who felt the weight of his sins in the face of what he knew was the certain coming judgment of God for every person. And so we need to hear what Luther learned. We need to hear what he understood As Luther was studying the book of Romans, he was familiar with the teaching of the church in his own day, which was rooted deeply in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin tradition. The term for justification in Latin referred to a way in which God makes a person righteous. That is what the word meant as it was taken from the Roman judicial system. And so Luther was living in a system that was concerned about how God makes a person righteous or right before him. The answer given at that time was that God did that through the sacraments of the church and other ways, always uh, done through the church. This was, as he would learn, a distortion of what the Bible actually taught. Then Luther began studying and translating the Bible from the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, and everything changed. The word in Greek did not mean to make righteous, but rather it meant and, re, and referred to a regarding as righteous or a counting as righteous or a declaration that something or someone is righteous. And so it was not making someone actually righteous, but declaring them to be so And it was at this moment, according to Luther, which was the moment of his awakening, he said, here, Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people, to sinners who don't have a righteousness of their own. And so Luther said, the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine, he said. And it was then, as he referred to it, as an alien righteousness apart from him, outside of him, a righteousness that belongs properly to someone else. It's a righteousness that is outside of us, he said, namely the righteousness of Christ. And Luther then wrote those famous words, which many have heard before, when I discovered that, That is, when I discovered that there is a righteousness outside of me, a righteousness that is given to me, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. Like Paul, his life was completely changed. Completely. And the life of the church in those days and forward was completely changed. The Reformation came on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. All of that came, of course, by the working of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, and it changed again the entire world. The gospel of grace, as focused upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, given to the sinner and received by faith alone, or what we refer to as the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, became the central doctrine of the Reformation, what the Reformers called the doctrine upon which the church will either stand or fall. This is what Paul now declares in these theme verses of Romans, and it will be the theme of the whole book. The whole book is Paul taking us through that whole understanding of how it is that sinners, which he will establish beginning in the next verses, how sinners can be made right with God. And so these verses are of utmost importance, even though they seem to be, and they are, very brief and very focused. And so as we study these verses, it seems wise to me that the best way for us to do this is just take it phrase by phrase in order, defining the terms and then putting it all back together again. And so we have here, I believe, one central statement made by Paul One central premise followed by three subordinate points or reasons that he gives for the premise. And so we'll look at it that way. The main point or the main premise that he brings up in these verses. And then the points that he gives as to why he is not ashamed of the gospel. So the main point is, as Paul writes in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This may seem strange to us for Paul to begin this way. He could have taken a positive sort of tact, a a positive approach, and said, I rejoice in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what he says is, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed at all of this gospel. We have a hint, I believe, in the previous verses as to why he says what he says here. It's important for us to relate what Paul says to what previously takes place in the verses prior to this. He had a longing to go to Rome. Of course, we saw that. For what purpose? Because he wants them to know that despite all that he has experienced in gospel ministry, he, individually, independently, is not ashamed of that gospel or of Christ. The gospel was the reason why Paul faced such persecutions wherever he went. Read through, as you've been encouraged over these weeks of our study, both in the pastoral epistles and the book of Romans, to read through the book of Acts and read about his travels, where he went, and see it's because of the gospel that people took offense at Paul. Consider all that he was willing to endure for the sake of preaching the gospel as he was called to the Gentiles. He knew personally what he wrote to the Philippians, that it was granted to him not only to believe the gospel, to have faith in the message that God gives in the gospel, but to suffer for that gospel for his sake. And he knew his audience as well. His audience was a world of sinners like himself who would scorn the message of the gospel. Paul scorned the message of the gospel. It's understandable why one might be tempted to be ashamed of it. Remember Paul's words to the Church in Corinth, the saints there. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who be, are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? has not god made the foolish has god not made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of god the world did not know god through wisdom it pleased god through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe for jews demand a sign and greeks seek wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to the jews and folly to the gentiles But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, what the gospel was doing, as Paul preached it and as he himself experienced it, what it was doing was challenging the status quo of human sin and rebellion. No one wanted to be told that they were sinners separated from God, that they were rebels against God, that they were haters of God. And so they were embarrassed by such a gospel, both Jews and Greeks alike. Paul was calling through the preaching of the gospel. He was calling men and women who are by nature haters of God to be reconciled to him, reminding them that they needed to be reconciled. Paul was not surprised. He had heard the teachings of Jesus and his disciples when Jesus said, the world hated me, it will hate you as well. There was a great reason to be ashamed of the gospel, to hide from it, to be embarrassed by it. Nonetheless, he told them that they must, Jesus did, that they must take up their cross. They must follow him. And he warned them to be careful to not take offense at Christ or his words. That is the gospel. Remember what he said in Luke 9. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, my gospel, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, what Jesus was saying was, What Paul is saying here, we we can't be ashamed of the gospel. To be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of Jesus. To be ashamed of the words of Jesus, which is the gospel, is to be ashamed of him. And so the great hymn, we don't often sing it because I don't think we know the tune well. At least I don't think we've ever sung it according to the hymnal that I keep track of all the things we sing. Joseph Griggs' hymn, Jesus and Shall It Ever Be?, Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee, ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glories shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus, just as soon let midnight be ashamed at noon, tis midnight with my soul till he, the bright morning star, bid darkness flee. Ashamed of Jesus, yes, I may, when I have no guilt to wash away no tear to wipe, no good to crave, no fears to quell, no soul to save. Till then, nor is my boasting vain, till then I boast a Savior slain, and oh, may this my glory be, that Christ is not ashamed of me. Paul, I think, could have easily sung those words, even here as he declared at the outset this Uh, sort of premise which guides the whole of the book of Romans. I am not, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Though many are tempted to be, I am not, he says. Well, that's the premise, the main point, and being careful and purposeful theologian as Paul was, he now tells the Romans, to whom he is writing, why it is that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And so much of what he says is what he has come to know by the grace of God. So much of what he says is what every believer knows and what they come to know as they receive the grace of God freely offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives, according to how I break it down, three reasons as to why he's not ashamed of the gospel and three reasons as to why we should never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is this. It is, he writes, the power of God for salvation to everyone, to everyone who believes. It is the power of God. It refers to God's omnipotence, his ability to do everything that he pleases. There is no one who is able to stand against him. That's the doctrine of God's omnipotence. There is no one stronger than him no one able to thwart his power or his will. In John 1, verses 12 and following, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, John writes this, "'He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God.'" What John is intending us to see there is that the power that God possesses is able to so work in the lives of sinners that it is able to raise them, as it were, from their spiritual death. God alone, who possesses this power, is alone able to do this. And Paul writes, It is a power of God that is for salvation. It is to the end that salvation might be realized and experienced. John Murray, in his excellent commentary, states that there is both a positive and negative aspect to salvation as we commonly understand it. For salvation is a freedom from bondage to sin and death, and it is a movement to newness of life in righteousness and holiness. And so salvation includes both aspects. We are saved from something, and we are saved to something. It's often a danger just simply to tell people you need to be saved without telling them what they need to be saved from and what we need to be saved to. And so when we talk to people about the work of God in Jesus Christ, we ought to fill those things in for them, help them to understand their bondage to sin and death and understand that to which God is calling them, newness of life in righteousness and holiness. And so the power is to or for salvation, for an act that God alone is able to complete. And notice he adds as well, it is to everyone, to everyone who believes. This, of course, will become the focus of really what are the next two parts of this, the idea of faith, everyone who believes the gospel. That is the means by which we receive this salvation, which God through his power accomplishes. It's to everyone who believes. There is no distinction. The gospel goes to all and all who hear it by the grace of God, who effectually are changed by it and the work of God's spirit. Come in faith to Jesus Christ. But there is no distinction, Paul says. It is first to the Jew, but it is also to the Greek. There, there's an order here which makes sense, doesn't it? Certainly, historically, there's an order. It was the Jewish people of old, of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, where the promises were given, the promises were made. So there's an historical and theological sense in which what Paul is saying is very true. He's not elevating one group above another. He's simply acknowledging that the Jews came first. And even more than that, even more than that, it was through the Jews that Christ came. He was the promised seed of Abraham, the promise given to Abraham. He was the promised Messiah who would sit on the throne of David. He came through the Jewish line, if you will. He himself was a Jew. And so there's great love that Paul has clearly for the Jews of which he was one. In the very book of Romans that we'll be studying and we're a ways off from this chapter. But in chapter 9, of course, we remember what Paul says about his Great love for his kinsmen according to the flesh. There he writes, they are Israelites, as he begins to speak about his kinsmen. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them, the Jews, belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is not again simply saying we need to highlight one group over another because he says that this power of God for salvation is to the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. In, in the end, they will be brought together in one body. But Paul is not willing to overlook the historical reality of how God works in history and says that it was through the Jews that the Christ came. And so therefore, it was first to the Jews. You see that in Acts As Peter and the other disciples and apostles move in Jerusalem, where predominantly, of course, there would be Jewish people there, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. God has made those promises. The Gentiles will be included, but it comes first to the Jew, and then and then and only then to the Greek. And so we see the first reason here it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. Secondly, the second reason he gives as to why he's not ashamed is because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, what's interesting is that the Bible, the Old Testament, in giving these prophecies that we have read and heard, speaks about how God always intended. To reveal his righteousness. Now, commentators vary and differ as to how we understand this phrase, the righteousness of God. Is it a reference merely to the righteousness or the righteous acts of God, that God Himself, being righteous, does only those things which themselves are righteous? Or is it something else more along the lines, I think, of where Paul is going to lead us? And that is a righteousness that God himself provides and grants to sinners like you and like me. I think that's where all of this goes. And I think reading these promises with that understanding in mind is very helpful. But in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, and when we studied the book of Isaiah... We saw this in many passages in that second part of the book, chapters 40 through 66. You may remember some of these verses in Isaiah 51, for instance. My righteousness, he says, draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens Vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. I think here we see clearly a prophecy pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which will be and will be for every believer the ground of their justification, his righteousness given to us, revealed, Paul says, here in the gospel. In Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, for my and my righteousness will be revealed. It will be shown. Now obviously there's a connection between the righteousness of God Himself and the righteousness that we receive, for it comes from Christ our Savior. And so it is the righteousness of God, if you will, and that clearly as we go through Romans will be again where Paul takes us. You have this interesting phrase added to the end of this statement in verse 17, from faith and for faith. Again, commentators are divided. There are various opinions as to what Paul means here with this structure. It It probably is best, as the ESV has it, from faith for faith. I think in the end, what Paul is saying here is that this righteousness, which God will grant and reveals in the gospel, is received by the believer, received by him, by faith alone, from first to last. It begins with faith, it ends with faith. It has always been that way, always been by faith. If you read through, as many do often, the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, you can see from the very beginning, it's always been about faith. Whether faith in promises that God gives under the old covenant, looking forward to Christ, or faith as we stand after Christ, looking back to the finished work Of Christ on the cross. It is always a matter of faith. And it is the vehicle, the means, the instrument, if you will, of our justification. And by that, theologians mean the means by which we receive the justification that God gives through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's always been from faith, for faith, first and last, a matter of faith. He's going to say a little more as we look at this third reason that we have in verse 17 about faith. But in this, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's why Paul is not ashamed of this gospel, is because there the full righteousness of God is revealed to sinners, a righteousness that they will need in order to stand before God. The third reason is this reason that comes from the book of Habakkuk. It is the righteous will live by faith. Paul is speaking here of of living, living out our lives by faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The righteous are those who have received through the instrument of faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are now in him righteous, and we will live our lives by faith, trusting in the promises of God. Now, it comes again from a very uh, unfamiliar book to many, perhaps, the small three-chapter book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk is wrestling with God, much like Job does, making complaints of God. It's called in the ESV a complaint in both places where he begins his complaints, And you remember the story, perhaps, the questions that confront Habakkuk. He's concerned in the first part of chapter 1 about the unrighteous acts of God's covenant people, how they're trampling the poor, how they're being dishonest, and all of the things that lead to justice falling down in the streets. He makes his complaint to God, and God answers him. He says, what I'm about to do, he says, you won't believe me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm going to raise up this people, this very wicked people, that they might be used as my instruments of judgment and punishment upon my people. Well, immediately we can see that Habakkuk is even more troubled. As he hears that response from God, he adds with great respect, of course, and you can see it in the words that he chooses but his complaint is clear. How is it that you who are of pure eyes to look upon evil, how is it that you can possibly be pleased to use a people like this, a Babylonian uh, wicked people, and he describes them as, as those who simply pluck men out of nets that are made for fish and simply destroys them, wicked men. How can you be pleased to use such a people to punish your people, and even says, a people more righteous than these others. And in response to that is where we have these verses. God doesn't actually explain himself to Habakkuk, but he makes this statement. He says, their hearts, meaning the Babylonian, the hearts of the Babylonians are puffed up within them. But he says, the righteous, my people, he says, will live by faith. What's really interesting, and this is a study worth itself uh, alone, is that there are three times where this verse is quoted in the New Testament. And in each case, it deals with one aspect of the phrase as a whole. The righteous will live by faith. In each of these places, one of those terms is dealt with. Romans 1.17, we have it here quoted. As Paul writes in why he is not ashamed of the gospel, it is because the righteous will live by faith. And then Galatians 3.11, where Paul writes, or all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. And then Hebrews ten thirty-eight: for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so the righteous, those who receive the righteousness of Christ by faith, will continue to live and will live by faith. Those are the three reasons. And you see it as we've broken it out according to the text, each one taken in order. But now you need to pull it all back together again and understand what it is that Paul is saying. He is not ashamed. He was never ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never ashamed, regardless of the age in which he lived and the foolishness that people may have thought that he came to believe. He was never ashamed of it because he understood and he knew that it was the cause, the reason for his own salvation. It was the reason why he was who he was because of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. We often live, sadly, in our day, especially our day, we often live as though we are ashamed to proclaim the truth of the gospel to this fallen world. And when we do so, we perhaps betray a latent belief that perhaps the gospel is not enough. Perhaps it's just not enough. But Paul knew that it was sufficient. It was sufficient for everyone and anyone. He knew it personally himself as he was a persecutor of the church, a murderer of Christians by his own testimony. And he knew it experientially as he saw that power displayed in his ministry given to him by God. He saw the power of God in the gospel. He saw it change people's lives, centurions, religious leaders, lots of different people from different backgrounds. He understood in his own life that he had a righteousness which was not his own. It wasn't because he was a leader of Pharisees that he was the greatest of them all. He understood himself to be who he was, a sinner at heart and chief of sinners by his own testimony. But he knew the righteousness which was his through faith in Jesus Christ. And he experienced that salvation that we spoke of. He knew that he was free now from bondage to sin and slavery to sin and death itself. And he knew he was saved for a reason, for a purpose. Uh, Romans 6 is going to tell us what that purpose is, to be more and more holy like Jesus is, the process of sanctification and growth in grace so he could declare what he was not ashamed, why he was not ashamed of the gospel. And all of this is what the book of Romans is about. He's going to unfold from its beginning what the gospel is in these terms as we've seen them here this evening. This is where we're going in our study. But I suppose, I suppose it's probably wisest for us To end by asking the most important question that anyone could ask at this point in our study of the book of Romans. And that is, we see it in the passage, the emphasis upon faith, upon believing the gospel. You know, faith includes not merely an intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel, It, it includes that. We have to understand what is being said in the gospel. We need to understand that we're sinners. We need to understand what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We need to intellectually, reasonably understand that and give assent to it, to say that it's true. But there must be, along with that, a willing submission to all that the Lord commands in the gospel. There must be. That's what Paul's talking about here when he talks about this idea of faith, not merely an intellectual assent. Yeah, that's true, Pastor, that's true. But a personal trust, a personal submission to what the gospel commands. It is not a one-time belief in the gospel. That's the beginning of our Christian life by the grace of God. But it's an everyday trust in the gospel as we understand what God has done for us in Christ It's really what Paul means when he quotes from Habakkuk. The righteous, or the just, shall live by his faith. Day after day, moment by moment, in every circumstance and providence of life, we are called to be people of faith. Not merely assenting again to some truths, like Jude reminded us, the content, the substance of our faith, but submitting ourselves to it and living accordingly. And so let me ask you tonight as you sit here, is that describe you tonight as someone who is living by faith, who has first come to believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, come to know that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, everyone who believes. Some have said and some will say, perhaps, to you or to me, that can't be for me, Pastor. Surely that can't be for me. I'm too far gone. You have no idea. I'm I'm too far gone. Well, think about what Paul says. It is the power of God. The power of God means his omnipotence, that there is no place that you could go, no place far from God that he cannot reach you. No place too deep, no place too far away that he cannot find you. Come ye sinners, Joseph Hart wrote in that great hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. But you don't know, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. How can God ever, ever accept me because of what I've done in my life? Well, Paul is not ashamed of this gospel because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done that we will be saved. And it is not because of the great acts of wickedness that we have done that we will be lost. It will be because we have rejected Christ, because in that, the righteousness of God is revealed. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. It's not the righteous, not the righteous, but it's sinners that Jesus came to call. But you may say, all of this sounds too hard for me. I just can't see myself ever being good enough, Pastor. I can't ever imagine. Well, it is by faith, from faith, and for faith. It is by faith that we come. Not by our efforts, our abilities, we have none. But it is merely by faith. Let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. This feeling of your need for him, he gives to you. Tis the spirit's rising beam. So come, sinners, come to the one who alone is able to save you, who provides for you a righteousness that will be necessary for you to stand before him, And gives it to you as a gift received only by faith. A faith in which you believe and trust and follow him. And be not ashamed of this gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God that comes from him is revealed in Jesus Christ. So that the righteous will indeed live. And live by faith alone. Let us pray. Father, with Paul tonight, as we hear these words, as we are reminded of why he was not ashamed of the gospel, we can heartily echo his words. And we can say that we are not ashamed of this gospel. It is our very life, because in it we have the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ and is received by faith alone, which itself is a gift. And so we praise you, we give you thanks. With the Apostle Paul, we pray that you would make us bold and effectual witnesses of yours, that we would not in our lives, by our words or acts or behavior, ever be ashamed of the gospel which brings life to all who would believe. Grant us grace to that end that we might be faithful in all that you've called us to. Dismiss us as we leave this place with your grace so that we might live this week by faith, trusting you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.